Good evening, Saddam Hussein's great enemy in war, Colin Powell, has died. Daniel Ellsberg, Stephen Zunas, Bill Hartung all have their two cents to throw in on the man who announced the weapons of mass destruction that were not there. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, October 18th, 2021. Colin Powell, the trailblazing soldier and diplomat whose sterling reputation of service to Republican and Democratic presidents was strained by his faulty claims to justify the 2003 U.S. war in Iraq, died today of COVID-19 complications. He was 84. A native of the South Bronx, Powell spent 35 years in the Army and rose to the rank of four-star general before becoming the first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He joined George W. Bush's administration in 2001 as Secretary of State. But his tenure was stained by his 2003 address to the U.N. Security Council, in which he cited faulty information to claim that Saddam Hussein had secretly stashed weapons of mass destruction. A conservative estimate is that Iraq today has a stockpile of between 100 and 500 tons of chemical weapons agent. That is enough agent to fill 16,000 battlefield rockets. Even the low end of 100 tons of agent would enable Saddam Hussein to cause mass casualties across more than 100 square miles of territory, an area nearly five times the size of Manhattan. Let me remind you that of the 122 millimeter chemical warheads that UN inspectors found recently. This discovery could very well be, as has been noted, the tip of a submerged iceberg. We have no indication that Saddam Hussein has ever abandoned his nuclear weapons program. On the contrary, we have more than a decade of proof that he remains determined to acquire nuclear weapons. We estimate that this illicit program cost the Iraqis several billion dollars. Saddam Hussein already possesses two out of the three key components needed to build a nuclear bomb. He has a cadre of nuclear scientists with the expertise, and he has a bomb design. Since 1998, his efforts to reconstitute his nuclear program have been focused on acquiring the third and last component, sufficient fissile material to produce a nuclear explosion. To make the fissile material, he needs to develop an ability to enrich uranium. Saddam Hussein is determined to get his hands on a nuclear bomb. Colin Powell speaking to the United Nations in 2003, shortly before the invasion of Iraq, laying out what turned to be a false statement. Powell and the United States entered a destructive decades-long war. They killed 5,000 U.S. troops and countless thousands of Iraqis, eventually leaving the country with a destabilized government tilting towards Iran, a U.S. rival in the region. But despite the fact the weapons of mass destruction never materialized, Secretary of State Antony Blinken joined many in praising Powell's leadership. Powell trusted the career workforce here. He empowered them. He made sure that the desk officer who knew a particular country or issue most deeply was the one who got to brief him or the president. He told his staff that they didn't need to worry about getting him fancy lunches. <laughs> Hamburgers and hot dogs were just fine. When he hopped onto the elevator, he'd pull others on with him. He didn't bother with formalities. And he wasn't overly concerned with hierarchy either. He wanted to hear from everyone. He walked around the building, dropping into offices unannounced, asking what people needed, 
making sure they knew he was counting on them. Secretary Powell was, simply and completely, a leader, and he knew how to build a strong and united team. He treated people the way he expected them to treat each other, and he made sure that they knew he would always have their back. The result was that his people would walk through walls for him. Secretary Powell's career in the U.S. military is legendary. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Powell's time as Secretary of State was largely defined by the aftermath of the September 11, 2001 terror attacks. He was the first American official to publicly blame Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda network. But as Washington's push for war in Iraq deepened, Powell sometimes found himself at odds with other key figures in the Bush administration, including Vice President Dick Cheney and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld also died this year. Another former official who faced a similar crisis of conscience but dealt with it differently is Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers and faced decades in prison during the Vietnam War. He says the Iraq War was a big mistake, but it can't be laid at the feet of one person. Tragedy in this case illustrates that anyone, anyone embedded in the institutional framework of the Defense Department can be seduced into lying to the American public and exaggerating the need for new weapons in order to to generate new sales to uh, the military-industrial complex. If Powell could do it, anyone can do it, and that's true. I did it 60 years ago, unknowing what I was doing, but I was one of those who who designed guidelines for the general nuclear war plan, which Powell later presided over as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that included a role for ICBMs, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, which were already obsolete. Mm-hmm. Colin Powell knew that it was a mistake to go into Iraq, and he, he uh, advised against it. And he was overruled, so he kept his mouth shut until he retired. He hadn't retired yet. Dale Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers and faced decades in prison during the Vietnam War. But Dr. Stephen Zunas, who's a professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco, Powell knew well. He was lying to the world when he announced that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, the reason used to justify the war. 90% of U.S. Middle East scholars, 80% of State Department officials specialized in the region opposed the uh, invasion. The evidence was not there. It's all been made public at this point. Me and other strategic analysts have gone through it. I can't imagine that he actually believed what he was saying. He was a pretty intelligent uh, person. I don't use the word lie very loosely because I know how easy people in high positions uh, can be deceived or engage in a degree of self-deception, but it's really hard for me to think of any scenario where he could have actually believed the things he was saying. But to me, what's most disappointing is not just what Powell did. Uh, other administration officials, of course, were lying as well. Uh, but the way that the mainstream media, Washington Post, New York Times, others, uh, took him at his word. And the way that uh, Joe Biden, who is the uh, Democrats' chief foreign policy spokesman at this point, through his position at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said that his uh, statements were irrefutable. Hillary Clinton made similar praise. And so it made very difficult for those of us who correctly had pointed out that indeed it was a very unconvincing presentation uh, to have much credibility when the Democrats were backing him up. 
he kept saying that the only thing between Saddam Hussein and a nuclear bomb is fissile material. And he's not a foolish man or a stupid man. He knows that that's like saying the only thing between me and going to Alpha Centauri is going to speed of light. Very much so. Not only was the, there not no clear evidence, a few blurry photos that didn't show what he purported them to show was not the worst of it. It was just sort of some of the basic assumptions, the leaps of logic that he made. I mean, I was uh, in the studio of the Fox Network affiliate here in the San Francisco Bay Area, watching it live and going on afterwards. And even then, it was clear that there was really nothing to it. It was a big nothing burger. And yet, I think people like uh, Biden and Clinton and, and others were so desperate to go to war, wanted it to be convincing that they were able to latch on to it, despite the uh, lack of evidence. Why did they want to go to war so badly against a country that was on the ropes like Iraq and wasn't going anywhere? Mm -hmm considering how the losses that happened because of it and the strategic disaster that came out of it. They had embraced Bush and Cheney's doctrine that in the post-Cold War era, the United States had the right to shape the world in its own image. It was about oil and empire, basically. And by oil, I don't mean in the simplistic sense of profiting U.S. oil companies. I mean, they were pretty ambivalent about it. But I think uh, what you know, they were more, probably more interested in is... Uh, Back when the people were worried about peak oil, the idea that if the United States could have control of the second largest producer of oil and have 14 permanent member, uh, military bases, as were planned, at the top of the Persian Gulf, we could effectively control the flow of 60% of the world's oil. And basically, it was part of a global hegemony. I mean, this was the great game of the 19th century, moved up to the 21st century. So there was a certain strategic logic to it, but it was a 19th century strategic logic. It was literally a reactionary foreign policy. Unfortunately, there were both Democrats as well as Republicans that were intent on trying to pursue this at whatever the cost. Stephen Zunis, he's a professor of politics and international studies at the University of San Francisco. Reports by Congress, the Iraq Survey Group and others soon pointed out that Iraq had ceased its biological and chemical warfare program by 1996 and had also long abandoned its nuclear weapons program. Journalists in Iraq knew there were no WMDs as well, despite reports in the New York Times and Washington Post that the weapons did exist. False reports. And in more defense news... 400 ICBMs dot the rural landscapes of Colorado, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Loaded in silos, these missiles are uniquely and dangerously on hair-trigger alert. Bill Hartung is director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy and author of Inside the ICBM Lobby. Nearly 400 intercontinental ballistic missiles spread across five states in the uh, upper Midwest. Now that's come down a little bit from the old days. There were 450 before the New START Treaty and probably over a thousand in the 60s, but it's still far more than enough to uh, end life as we know it. So they're the most dangerous weapons in the world in some respects. What kind of warheads are on top of these things? They have multiple warheads in each missile that can independently uh, go after targets. Each of them is probably many, many times the uh, explosive power of the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and killed a couple hundred thousand people. So it's immense destructive power. It could destroy essentially life as we know it. And if if there was an exchange of warheads of that magnitude, there would probably be a global famine 
as a result of the combination of the radiation and blocking of sunlight and so forth. So to some degree, the numbers don't matter when you've still got such massive amounts. If there were a 1,000, they would end the world. If there's 400, they would end the world. Why do we have such massive destructive power when the only outcome would be suicide for both sides? There's a high level of irrationality in nuclear doctrine. Over the years, it's all developed between if this side does that, we'll do this. Can we knock out their nuclear forces or not? Could they knock out our forces? Therefore, we have to build more and different. So it's almost divorced from the reality of the fact that if you had any kind of significant exchange, you'd end the possibility of future life on the planet. So there's this kind of a sense of denial and just kind of a nuclear strategy bubble that a lot of these folks are in. But of course, there's also money to be made. So the new ICBM over its lifetime is going to cost $264 billion. Northrop Grumman got a $13 billion no-bid contract to start building the thing. There's a huge element of pork barrel politics and the military-industrial complex at work, but I think there's also just this irrational strategy that's just developed since the Cold War, and it's got a hold on the people that make these decisions. What do you think should happen? Well, I think we should eliminate ICBMs altogether because of the fact that in a crisis, a president would have you know, a matter of minutes to decide whether to launch them, increasing the risk of an accidental nuclear war through a false alarm. And do you think there's any hope that Congress would act on this? Congress will need a lot more pressure from the public before they roll this back. Uh, there's been votes to limit the spending on the new ICBM, but you don't see anything in Congress saying, let's get rid of these things altogether. So I think it could take a new president, and it'll certainly take a lot more public pressure Bill Hartung is director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy and author of Inside the ICBM Lobby. And former American military analyst and RAND Corporation whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg precipitated the national uproar in 1971 when he released the Pentagon Papers. He's also the author of The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Today, with the Institute for Policy Analysis director Norman Solomon, he's published the piece in The Nation – to avoid Armageddon, don't modernize missiles, eliminate them. Daniel Ellsberg joins WBAI. Northrop Grumman needs one additional source of profit, and this is a big one. Boeing, the others, all their subcontractors all over the country need those contracts. The Air Force has taken care to see that in 45 of the 50 states, there are people at work with jobs who could complain to their senators if their job was cut off, as it should be. It should be converted to uh, some other job. But that's the, uh, uh, that's the alleged need that these, and of course, those people do need to eat. Almost any other way of employing them would generate more jobs, but these are the ones they have now. And Northrop Grumman has hundreds of lobbyists making sure that this goes to their pockets rather than to makers of solar panels, let's say, or education profits, which would generate several times as, as many jobs and votes in Congress. They've essentially bought Congress in uh, every state in the union. What's the danger of having 400 missiles in silos? What's the danger of that? What's wrong with that? They're a lightning rod for attack. They are a hair trigger uh, because to avoid their destruction, if there's an enemy attack, the president is supposed to make a decision within 10 minutes yes, to I... use them or lose them. That's how long they'll survive after he's warned that enemy missiles are on their way. The ICBMs can't contribute 
at all to the deterrence of an attack on the U.S., a nuclear attack, because they can't survive that attack. They don't, they've not only been obs, uh, obsolete, unnecessary, ever since we got operational Polaris and now Trident submarine weapons, which goes back to the early 60s, more than half a century ago. Since that time, there has been no other purpose than continuing to provide for, at the cutting edge, jobs in real estate in Minot, North Dakota, and other places where these things are stationed. And by the way, it's no coincidence that the ICBM caucus, the senators who understand an extreme military security need for these missiles, are precisely the senators in which those missiles generate jobs, and no other senators. Uh, Wyoming, North Dakota, Montana, and then there are missiles in Chicago and Nebraska. They're re refurbished in Utah. There's a B-1 base in Louisiana. Those 10 senators are the ICBM caucus. What should the Congress do right now? Very simple. They should fill the silos with cement so that the Russians lose them as targets, essentially. They don't lose submarines as targets. There is no advantage in their being able to target these submarines. So they should eliminate our Minutemen, drop the plans to modernize them with the so-called ground-based strategic deterrent the uh, new name for our new missile program that should be entirely dropped. And as I said, that's $243 billion. And the congressmen can be told on the armed services committees in House and Senate, they are not. In fact, they really should lose election if they, uh, if they endanger us in this way. Every one of them, by the way, uh, starting with Adam Smith getting the most, the House chairman, gets copious million uh, of campaign money from these, uh, from these Northrop Grumman, uh, Lockheed, uh, General Dynamics, we should say that's not your only consideration. If you want to stay in, uh, do your job. Preserve the country. Former American military analyst and RAND Corporation whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. At, as the recipient of the sole source contract to build the proposed new ICBMs, Northrop Grumman has joined with other top contractors to block efforts to reduce spending on these uh, dangerous, unnecessary systems, they write in their article in The Nation today, or even simply to pause their development. And that article is the um, – pardon me as I look it up – Armageddon to avoid Armageddon, don't modernize missiles, eliminate them. It's in The Nation and you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The New York City Civilian Complaint Review Board, or CCRB, today um, announced it is officially recommending 65 NYPD officers be disciplined for misconduct committed during the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer of 2020. The NYPD was criticized by multiple groups and agencies over their response to the protests in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. In a statement issued by the CCRB today, the police oversight entity said it has recommended charges and specifications, the highest level of discipline, against 37 officers. The agency listed the officers facing charges in a data snapshot that was also released today. Those charges range from abuse of authority, untruthful statements, excessive force, discourtesy, and offensive language. Once the NYPD serves the charges against those 37 officers facing the most serious allegations of misconduct, each will face an administrative trial, which could potentially lead to loss of vacation days, suspension, or termination. 
For the 28 other officers, the CCRB is recommending less serious disciplinary actions in the form of loss of vacation days or additional training. And in COVID news, mask rules, vaccination mandates, and business shutdowns have all landed in the courts during the COVID-19 outbreak, confronting judges with questions of science and government authority. Now they're increasingly being asked to weigh in on the deworming drug ivermectin. At least two dozen lawsuits have been filed around the U.S., many in recent weeks, by people seeking to force hospitals to give their COVID-stricken loved ones ivermectin, a drug for parasites that's been promoted by conservative commentators as a treatment, despite a lack of conclusive evidence that it helps people with the virus. Interest in the drug started rising towards the end of last year and the beginning of this one when studies, some later withdrawn in other countries, seemed to suggest ivermectin had some potential, and it became a hot topic of conversation among conservatives on social media. The lawsuits, several of them filed by the same Western New York lawyer, cover similar ground. The families have gotten prescriptions for ivermectin, but hospitals have refused to use it on their loved ones who are often on ventilators and facing death. And at least 14,500 direct care home workers are currently opting to miss work rather than take the COVID-19 vaccines, according to data provided by the New York State Department of Health. And the industry has already was already experiencing staffing shortages, which industry groups have attributed to the growing senior population and demand for home care outpacing the supply of caregivers. And last week, federal, a federal judge uh, temporarily allowed health care workers in New York to skip mandatory COVID-19 vaccines if they apply for religious exemptions, a decision the state and city is opposing in court. But today, Health and Hospitals Director Mitchell Katz said, the situation is under control. We're still coming back, and uh, we don't even call it putting anyone on unpaid leave uh, because that implies a specific duration. We, we are simply for the day that they are set to work. They are coded as having not been at work, and they do not get paid uh, for that day. Uh, but we are still continuing to get people in for vaccination. We passed. Ninety-four percent now of our staff fully vaccinated. Uh, we've had relatively few people retire or say that they uh, will not get vaccinated. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that by the time um, we are at the end of this month, the numbers are going to be very small and all, all our hospitals are functioning fully now. And that's Health and Hospitals Director Mitchell Katz. There's a ray of hope for hundreds of thousands of retired city workers, meanwhile, who suddenly had their health benefits changed because of what they call a bait-and-switch deal between Mayor Bill de Blasio and the unions. They claim they're being forced to accept an inferior and costly plan that could bankrupt them in their golden years. The mayor defended the health care plan today. He says it would save $600 million with a massive change to the health insurance offered to 250,000 retirees. The goal of this plan was very simple, provide as good or even better benefits and protect the long-term health of the health plan so our retirees would know it is there for them reliably for decades to come. Uh, this plan was developed with the Municipal Labor Council, with the unions that represent retirees. A painstaking process over months, even years, to figure out the right plan. And I think it's a very good and smart and fair plan. I do think there's a lot of misinformation out there. I do think there's uh, questions that should be answered more clearly. A huge number of doctors will be uh, taking this plan. I, I think there's things that people have been told that just aren't the truth, but that's the job of the city, working with the MLC to get the truth out. We will be doing that. 
Mayor de Blasio. The favorite in the November election is Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Adams says if he wins, he'll review the controversial deal worked out by de Blasio and the unions. And that's some of the news for Monday, October 18, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.